Do you collect Doctor Who? With over a hundred Target books stacked up, you are definitely a Doctor Who collector. For all things in the Doctor Who collecting world, tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, a Direction Point Network podcast. I am Larry Van Mersbergen, your host, and I have been collecting Doctor Who, including Target books, for 40 years. With popular features like collection protection and the most outrageous offer, you can learn a lot about Doctor Who collecting. Available anywhere you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hi, I'm Juliet. And I'm Nathan. Experience Doctor Who from the very beginning through a classic fan's eyes. And through the eyes of a new Who fan. Reminisce and relive those classic moments with Nathan as he offers fun insight. Or experience them for the first time with Juliet as she dwells on social issues, history, fashion, and the size of a flashlight. We're the Time Streams Podcast. Find us on Spotify, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club. Enjoy your travels. Hello, fellow time travelers. I'm Wendy Padbury, and you're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the blood-curdling task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. <laughs> Sorry. The closest thing that we're going to have to a Halloween special this year, so. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally blood-curdling three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. And finally, we have our semi-novice fan, one who's seen a little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Alison. Wow. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> Let me try it again. Wow. Hello. <laughs> there we go. I'm sorry. I was trying to be scary and I just seemed sort of like I, I needed a friend. Well, <laughs> well, that second laugh was somehow even creepier. I don't know how, but if you like what you're hearing, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive, among other possible goodies, mugs, and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of those, you've buried them in an underground crypt beside your vampiric god, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, 
Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bangelsdorf, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, and Joseph Middleton Welling. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We continue our discussion of Tom Baker's final season as we discuss Terrence Dickstalization of Steve Decay. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who in the State of Decay, adapted by Terrence Six from a script that aired from 112280 to 121380, published by Target Books in January 1982. As of this recording in October 2022, this title is out of print and is available as an unabridged audiobook, 125 pages. Now, as we talked about last time, when John Nathan Turner took over as producer and Christopher H. Bidney took over as script editor, there was only one script that was even close to being ready for production, and that was Terrence Dick's script, The Vampire Mutations. It had been canceled a few years before, so as not to clash with the BBC production of Dracula, and so Dix hastily wrote The Horror Fang Rock to fill in for it. Which reminds you just what a good job Dix can do even when he's under deadline. To get this one ready for filming, though, it needed a lot of changes. It needed the addition of the eSpace plot thread, the inclusion of K9 and new companion Adric, the softening of Dick's deliberate nods to gothic horror movies, the inclusion of some hard scientific and linguistic material that Bidney demanded, such as the stuff about phonetic shift. In short, the experience of whipping the script into shape for the new production team was not all that pleasant for Dix, nor for the director, Peter Moffat, who also liked the hammer horror elements of the script, which Bidmead was specifically trying to keep out. You might even say he wasn't letting them in. <laughs> oh, God, I'm sorry. I was thinking about vampires being invited and all that hullabaloo. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Adric was the most difficult element to include, as he usually is, mainly because while Dix wasn't having to write the character's introduction, there wasn't much for him to go on apart from JNT's description of him as an artful Dodger type of character. Dix tried to play up those characteristics, such as having Adric seem to side with the vampires, only to have them downplayed again by both script editor and producer. They also at one point wanted to call the story The Wasting, which Dix thought was an awful title. And I agree with them. <laughs> I'd say Dix was correct. Yeah, He would be. There are a few lines referring to The Wasting in the TV version that go nowhere. It's not explained what it is or anything. What is The Wasting? The Wasting? Yes. The Wasting is... The Wasting. Ah. And readers will note that the book never mentions it once, not a single time. It wasn't a happy experience for Matthew Waterhouse either in his first turn as Adric. He was intimidated by his co-stars, and they were put off by his inexperience and rudeness, so that he'd already developed a bad rapport with them by the time rehearsals were done. None of this was helped by Tom Baker having become very ill during the filming of The Leisure Hive, and by the time the story was filmed, he was sick to the point of his hair uncurling. What? Oh. Yes, for some reason, Tom Baker's hair started uncurling because of this illness. So it's one of the few times you see the fourth doctor without curly hair. 
Oh my God. It's so strange. And we still don't know what it was, but he was sick for months. For wasting. Ah. He was also getting along badly with Lala Ward, with whom he tried to rekindle their romance, only to have her turn him down. In many scenes of the story, in fact, he refuses to make eye contact with her. But in a move that Ward later characterized as a big mistake on her part, she eventually relented, and before long they were telling friends and co-workers that they were engaged to be married. Oh, I thought you were saying this was after the divorce. No, no, no. God, no. They're not married yet. So there's your Hammer Horror film in the making right there. All right. Oof. And their marriage would only last for 18 months, so that tells you something. They are recording Big Finish audios together now, but not in the same room. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow, it's been a while. Yeah, it definitely has been. One more thing to note about the audiobook versions of this one, and I say versions because it's plural. Before the hardcover version of this book was published in September of 1981, Terrence Dix wrote another audio-only version of the story for Pickwick Talking Books in June of that same year. For the longest time, this was the only audiobook of the story, and it's not even the same text as the Target book. The audiobook of this text wasn't released in full until January 2016. And if you think all of that is confusing, oh, just you wait till we get to the next book. <laughs> I mean, I'm guessing people weren't exactly clamoring for it all those years, but <laughs> no, I, I could be wrong. They really weren't. And since no. the audiobook was read by Tom Baker, it was kind of like, yeah, but we get Tom Baker reading it, so... So content doesn't really matter. Not really, no. When you got Tom Baker, content never matters, as we've seen in so many of these scripts. <laughs> well, I meant in terms of it being new material. I mean, it's an older book, but having a new performance, I can see why that would sell it yes. more than the actual story. Well, let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Allison, could you do the back reading of the cover for us? The Dr. Romina. <laughs> okay. Damn it, Dalton. We're going to leave that in. <laughs> The Doctor, Romana, and K-9, and a young stowaway called Adric are trapped in the alternative universe of e-space. Seeking help, they land on an unknown planet and find a nightmare world where oppressed peasants toil for the lords who live in the tower, and where all learning is forbidden, a society in a state of decay. What is the terrifying secret of the three who rule? What monstrous creature stirs beneath the tower, waking from its thousand-year sleep? Doctor discovers that the oldest and deadliest enemy of the Time Lords is about to spring into horrifying action. Action! And, as we know, the answers to those questions are both vampire! Oh, Lord. Dalton, what was your first impression when you got this? Well, looking at the cover, I thought that the vampire looks like it's bringing this back to show and tell. <laughs> He's very proud of his bat. <laughs> Not my favorite cover that we've had, but we we did know that we were dealing with vampires, and I'm pretty well versed in vampire lore and, and such, so it's kind of excited about that new take that the Time Lords are enemies of them. But sure, yep. Um, <laughs> and then having E Space be described as an alternative universe. I immediately thought about Depeche Mode and Nine Inch Nails being the soundtrack of this world. Dark and brooding. Maybe some cure, you know. No big expectations, but 
I could, I could see this being a fun story. And um, yeah, I was a little disappointed, but it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling that if it had been produced when it was originally going to be produced with Philip Hinchcliffe doing his last producership and Robert Holmes doing script editing on it, it probably would have been as impressive a story as we got with Horrifying Rock. But no, no, it had to come in under this era of hard sci-fi and it doesn't fit it really. Allison, what was your uh, first impression? trying to figure out which side of this uh, congregationalist Quaker 17th century conflict the doctor was going to be on. Pretty sure he'd be a Quaker uh, <laughs> based on his uh, attire and his collars there in the front. The vampire, uh, I, don't, I thought, is it a snout? Wraparound <laughs> eyebrows? I cannot quite characterize what's going on with his face, but it's not. I mean, the artist has succeeded and convincing me I'm not looking at a human. I like Dalton's story about show and tell and the Nine Inch Nail soundtrack. I think he wrote a better story. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be hard to write a worse one. Well, and since this was Halloween themed and there are bats, the, the vampire here has, I guess it's sort of like a red cloak or red reflection, but it kind of looks like he's wearing a pumpkin costume. It does. does. (laughs) Perhaps on Halloween, as he goes to school in his pumpkin costume to show his bat. (laughs) It's a Quaker school, and the teacher's not that impressed and kind of horrified that he's brought a live animal in. (laughs) You know what's really horrifying about that cover? It's done by Andrew Skeletor, and Andrew Skeletor usually does much better covers. I mean, those prints that I keep talking about that you've both seen in my apartment, those are Andrew Skeletor. Mm-hmm. The doctor himself is good. Yeah, the doctor yeah. looks fantastic. And even the bat that he's holding up looks good. It's it's the vampire himself that just isn't doing anything for me. The great pumpkin rising from the pumpkin patch? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, goodness, yeah. Where do we start with this one? Dalton, you said you were ultimately disappointed in it, so... I'd be interested to hear from a vampire lore expert's point of view why this one is so disappointing. Well, I don't know that I would call myself an expert. I'm an enthusiast, I would say. But okay, like we've had in the past with some stories, it doesn't feel like there's any high stakes here. It doesn't feel like any of these vampire creatures are necessarily like powerful, even though we're told they hold this power over these people. But the extent of which we see is like controlling bats and stopping someone from throwing something at them in midair. <laughs> so, and I guess maybe a little bit of hypnotism, but nothing really seems that dangerous to me as opposed to, yeah, Dracula or something like that. That's going to be more foreboding and a little more sinister and even charismatic. They don't even feel that to me. <laughs> no. No, they they are pretty flat on the page, aren't they? Yeah. (laughs) You know, the frozen chosen usually doesn't apply to vampires, but it could here. (laughs) Can it count as a religious designation? (laughs) (laughs) God. Yeah, I, I think this is one of those situations where it suffers from not having the performances. Mm hmm. Because Orkon, who's on the cover, is played by an actor who is just hamming it up and is having the best time with it. And 
it actually is kind of a fun story to watch simply because you're like, okay, they are having a good time with this and they're enjoying it. That doesn't translate to the page too terribly well for some reason. Yeah. Well, we've already started with the negatives. <laughs> it's too easy to do. Let's start with the positives instead. What would we say actually works well about this book, if anything? What I thought was interesting, at least at first, was that the situation was so incredibly similar to the very last story that we read. Hmm. And usually when we see common story elements, there's at least one or two stories in between the current iteration of the element and the last time we saw it. But the Doctor and Romana arrive on a planet that it's pretty obvious from the very beginning was a society in some way founded by a spaceship crash. Mm -hmm. Very far past spaceship crash. Very stratified and hierarchical. Three members rule them. They still use the ship. Uh, There's a rebel movement in, like, a cave or a shrubbery. Oh, my God. Adric should relate to this really well, and I thought that's what they were setting up. But then it just seemed kind of coincidental. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I thought they were setting setting up a story to have Adric develop a bit more. Hmm. But now he is the alien visitor from outer space. Yes. And the wise one. And he has much greater scientific knowledge than the people of this civilization who have been forbidden to explore science. But neither he nor Dr. nor Romana seem to pick up on the similarities at all. Probably because you have a script editor who wasn't really trying to tie his own trilogy together all that well. I hate to say that, but yeah, you're right. That could have been tied together quite well, but it isn't. Even down to... The idea that the three rulers are trying to keep a massive secret from the populace. Well, so I was thinking, and there's clearly, you know, a huge spaceship that's not just in the distant past, but on the outskirts of town. I thought it couldn't possibly be accidental, but then it's not really addressed. Yeah, it really isn't. (laughs) And it could have been, but for some reason it wasn't. A lot of that may be because Terrence Dix was under so much pressure from Bidbee to take this out, add this, do this, do this, that somehow it just got lost in the process. In fact, I'd really love to know what the original script summary was like, because it was the Doctor and Leela originally. Oh, that far back. Yeah, that sounds like that would have had some really interesting things going on with Leela possibly being less frightened than the Doctor of the Mm. Vampires because she doesn't actually know of any legends of the undead, whereas for him, it's a race memory for the Time Lords, apparently. I think it would have been a more interesting story had it been produced back then. I thought we were doing the positives. (laughs) (laughs) I thought we were doing the positives. Well... I was interested at first, is what I started with. Oh, yeah. I thought they were setting up some interesting (laughs) parallelisms, and I was interested to see how it would be developed, and the answer was it was not developed in any way at all. Okay. So, interested at first. Interested at first. Fooled me into being interested. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Oh, Lord. I think there are some funny lines, and there are some funny interactions, and, you know, the... The sequence or the exchange that gives us the title, when the Doctor refers to a yawning chasm, 
between their two social classes in the tower and then in the village. And Romana says it's a sociopathic abscess. <laughs> doctor called it a state of decay. There's some mm. fun banter with the doctor and Romana and him asking questions and her saying no, knowing that he's not listening to her answers at all. But I mean, they have some very fun scenes. I mean, it's yeah. not painful to read. It's just the story itself is underwhelming. I won't remember it in a couple of hours. And you're right. There actually is a lot more humor on the page than there is in the script, because obviously this is that era where J&T and Bidmead are trying very hard to make this into just a completely po-faced, serious science fiction series. But you have Tom Baker, who's a comedic genius when he wants to be, and you have Lala Ward, who also has incredible comedic timing, and you have this guy playing Orcon who is just eating up the scenery, so of course there's got to be some humor, but there's a lot more of it on the page which is fun when it comes up. Yeah, it's it's one of the few bright spots in here that makes it feel like something worth reading. <laughs> Overall, the story just seems very dialed in. Even the reveal about the three leaders being the original astronauts from the ship, I figured that out before they even started talking about the consonant drift, just the the names themselves. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, I see where this is going. Yeah. So <laughs> the tower was obviously going to be the spaceship. Mm-hmm. Terrence Stick seems to like his dark towers <laughs> because we're going to see that come up again in another script of his coming up soon. But it's pretty obvious. In fact, that was one of the major bits of disagreement between he and Bidmead. Because Bidmead kept saying, oh, no, 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 we want the viewers to think that maybe they're not vampires. We want the reveal to actually be a reveal. And Terrence Dix basically said, oh, don't be stupid. Come on. <laughs> the viewers are going to know these are vampires. There's just going to be no way around this. I wouldn't have known that they were vampires if there weren't, you know, bats on the book cover and you hadn't told us we were reading it for Halloween. I would not automatically say, well, of course, the crash spaceship of oligarchs is you know vampiric in nature oh okay. i wouldn't have automatically thought that i actually at one point thought there was going to be a suggestion they were sort of possessed robots when they referred to their sort of hissing speech oh. and slow sort of a, a flat affect i thought I, I guess asses. i didn't guess <laughs> I, didn't. <laughs> I think i said flat affect i'm not sure <laughs> I I've heard flat asses. Up. I'm sorry. <laughs> that that is also possible. This is not an illustrated copy that you sent us. <laughs> so I would not have assumed that they were vampires just from the page without those contextual clues provided by the illustrator and Tony. But on the screen, I'm sure it could be much different. It's pretty easy to spot on screen as well. It's not a surprise by any means at all. I'll tell you what is a surprise, though, and this is something I kind of like. We finally get a mention of Kenpo again, mm -hmm. the doctor's friend from up on the mountain mm -hmm. who used to tell him ghost stories when he was a kid. <laughs> and, of course, that would be in a Terrence Dix script, wouldn't it? Because it was during Terrence Dix's reign as story editor that you got those mentions of Kenpo to begin with. So it was nice to have that back in. <laughs> the Doctor in Campo is the Midnight Society. <laughs> yes, exactly. 
<laughs> oh God. Yeah. I could just see that being the case too. <laughs> and this is something Terrence Dix does seem to like to do. He likes to play around with Time Lord lore. Boy, is he going to get a chance to play with it the next time he writes a script. But in this case, just as he does with Hara Fang Rock, he introduces us a bit more to the larger Hooniverse. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I'm looking at a book literally across the room called Hooniverse, so that's why it's in my head. But he's introducing us to more of that larger universe of the show. First in that story, that earlier story with the Santarns and the Rutans, and this one saying that the vampires exist throughout the universe, and the reason they do is because the Time Lords fought them to a standstill, mm -hmm. which is much more interesting than the story we get here. <laughs> that being said, the second, not the first, but the second, well, interesting story this. When the TV movie with Paul McGann was produced in 1996, the license for the Virgin Publishing Books, the New Adventures line, was finishing. And so BBC Books wanted to create their own version of it with the Eighth Doctor. And they did. And the first writer they had back was Terrence Dix, who wrote The Eight Doctors. And it is a, I'm sorry, Dix fans, but it is a terrible book. <laughs> It is awful. Whereas the second book in that series is called Vampire Science by Kate Orman and Jonathan Blum. And it is really good, and it follows up on this. Mm. So you get the Time Lord faced against vampires again. And it's like, okay, good. I'm glad somebody picked up on this, because Christ almighty. Vampires in the Doctor universe, it seems like a perfect match, and you rarely get it. And this is the one story where, well, <laughs> one of two stories where you get it. I personally don't think it works as well the second time it comes up. Yep, sorry, you thought this time worked well? Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think it's more that I don't like the second time as much, but we'll we'll get to that when we get to it. Well, I think that for all that it is, the vampires are vampire enough. We, we get the idea that that's who they are. I did enjoy the lore of basically these great beings, kind of these Cthulhu-esque great ones having to be fought back by the Time Lords. You know, that kind of lore is interesting and in that basically there are smaller iterations of them now, probably sprinkled throughout the universe, in humanoid form mm -hmm. or, or whoever they have infected with vampirism makes, makes it interesting because it, it allows it to live on, but in a more manageable way, I guess, mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, the doctor having to figure out that he needs to literally crash a ship through <laughs> this being to kill it. Yes. So I, yeah, I, I like the idea that it's kind of seeded there that yes, vampires, are still out there. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, Dalton, that you said that it doesn't feel like it's a very high-stakes story because if you think about it, it really is because if the Great One actually wakes up, he's going to be able to take the three who rule and all of the humans on this planet, presumably he'll vampirize them or whatever and have a new army and take them through CVE and back into our own universe. So... The stakes are pretty high there, but it just doesn't really 
translate to the page much, does it? No. And I, I mean, I could, I guess I could have seen there being more vampires as it is. We have three small vampires, one sleeping great one and a bunch of humanoid guards. Mm -hmm. If this was a tower full of vampires that have powers that are infinitely more difficult to deal with, (laughs) you know, we, we hear about uh, Tarak just like taking out guards left and right as he's mm-hmm. coming in to get Romana and it's like they're just dudes yeah. right right they're just guys so if it was a tower full of vampires then it would have felt like oh damn what are we gonna do how are we gonna actually succeed in what we need to get done mm-hmm. but exactly three vampires that are two of them seem to just be following the other one who seems to actually have more kind of um, of a relationship with the great one. He's the one kind of leading the show as it were. So you have him kind of figuring things out, what needs to be done, finding the chosen ones and getting the food and <laughs> that kind of stuff. <laughs> and then you have the Lord and lady who basically just seem like they're chilling on their thrones. Yeah. <laughs> Hence the flat asses. <laughs> Exactly. Did, did anyone see the sequence of Charles and Camilla entering that church to uh, that rest- church. restore? <laughs> yeah. uh, re- well, I don't remember where they were actually being seated on two thrones, but someone scored it to the Imperial March in Star Wars. <laughs> That's what I kept thinking about the entire time. I don't remember with Westminster Abbey or with one of the other parts of the whole 10 day festivity of funeral. Oh, um, anyway. You know, it was really easy to visualize a Camilla in here. <laughs> yeah, the name sort is the of same. Vampire queen. Yeah. <laughs> As I said, a lot of this translates to the screen a lot better because you get very eerie music and pretty decent makeup and some stuff that actually had to be toned down because the head of drama thought it was too horrific. Well, so I thought it was actually... Pretty boring, pretty boring and annoying, which I combine into boying <laughs> for most of the first part of the story because I thought the description of the society was stupid. <laughs> uh, like they have a selection, but everybody already knows everybody, but maybe not in the tower. Maybe not everyone in the tower knows everyone in the village, or maybe they just don't know the younger people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if they're breeding people to drink their blood, shouldn't they let them reproduce first yes. instead, of, instead of taking the teens? But then it took a really dark turn when our heroes are down in a tunnel lined by racks of drained bodies and then find a fuel tank full of blood. So I will say that when it happened, it happened. It it was pretty dull before that, but uh, it it went dark in a hurry. Mm -hmm. And yet it still doesn't make sense when you get there. Well, I was actually kind of hoping, this is lame, that there would be like some kind of explanation of the blood preservation process or something <laughs> they were making blood wine or right because otherwise <laughs> it's going to coagulate well they were slowly infusing the creature i think it took a thousand years to feed him enough i'm not sure so there was actually some very striking imagery here about the fuel tanks full of blood and the the bodies lining the hall and the huge amphitheater but a lot of the creepiness and atmospherics were lost to it being so unbelievably stupid mm-hmm. yeah Because on the page, you can question these things and you can say, wait a minute, the selection process, 
how often does it happen and why are they taking the most virile guys, presumably to keep them from rebelling, but also, like you say, shouldn't they be letting them reproduce first so that they can keep this going? How many villagers could they possibly have that they can keep this up for this long? Why do they keep the dried out husks? Why bother with that? Yeah. Why not just bury them or something? It's been a thousand years, guys. Get it together. Yeah. But also, too, why don't they just bleed them a little bit and feed him a little bit of blood and then let the bodies, like, replenish the blood that's lost mm-hmm. and then bleed them again? <laughs> the, the blood is basically a renewable resource. <laughs> right. and, and they're just burning through all these bodies. Like I took it to mean they needed a massive amount more than they could ever harvest at one time from a population so they took entire people drained all their blood and then you know banked that and then got some more the next year or the next time they had a selection but again if if they're having to like store it then you still could bleed people keep them alive and then it replenishes right. like why completely drain them and just have all these bodies lying around <laughs> you know i like that you're uh, working on the problem of uh, sustainable vampirism <laughs> Well, there's an interesting book that's written by Stephen Baxter that is a sequel to War of the Worlds called The Massacre of Mankind. And he actually has to address something like this because in that book, the Martians come back and they essentially take over large parts of the world and are occupying those parts of the world. And the humans inside them are used as cattle because, as we all know from the book, they feed on human blood. And he has to figure out how it's possible for them to have that ready supply regularly. And it's that the humans have bleeding tables that they regularly have to go to. And then they're fed and replenished and then they come back to the bleeding tables. So that makes more sense. But yeah, draining them out entirely all at once, that's kind of greedy a little bit, I would think. Yeah, there's just a little too much that we don't know about this whole process catching us. It's like, what? I don't think they're going to be too troubled by your moral accusations, Johnny. <laughs> no, no, probably not. Greedy bloodsucker. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think the reason why Dalton's plan for human consumption isn't adopted by Dix or the production team is probably that's one of the things that the head of drama would have said, oh, no, that's too nasty. We can't do it. Well, what they do come up with here is, you know, the most striking image in the entire story. Oh, yeah. At least reading it. So it's memorable. Oh, it's definitely memorable. I I figured they were keeping the bodies there to conceal what had been done to them. Why bother, though? The villagers already know that something horrible is happening. And if they don't have their loved ones coming back as vampires, which would actually fit vampire lore a lot better, then... Why bother trying to conceal it? It seems like it's one of the worst kept secrets ever. I wasn't sure if I understood if the whole village knew or just Ivo, because it seemed like there might be a conception that it's just some kind of permanent castle service. (laughs) There's going to be a guard or maybe someone who works in the house who doesn't come out again. I don't know. They, They spoke of the docility of the victims and how they went very willingly and it seemed like there wasn't a whole lot of 
fear. Yeah, it, it felt like they knew that something was up, that something bad could happen to them. But we don't have very much evidence of what that is. Mm-hmm. I guess they knew some people become guards. So they think maybe it's just sort of a permanent jobs program. <laughs> <laughs> that, that maybe you will have a job where you are sometimes outside of the tower. And maybe everyone else is just making brunch and, you know, feeding the chickens and other tasks. <laughs> Whatever those tasks may be. Or maybe everyone dies, but I didn't get the feeling that everyone knows that these teens are doomed. Ivo knows, but I don't think the other villagers seem to necessarily know. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure why they wouldn't, because if they don't think that there's any other places on the planet, what reason would they have to know anything else? I mean, literally... They are not allowed to learn anything, and they have nothing to do except work the fields and then die eventually. Just nothing felt lived in or convincing or resonant at all about the social setup. Yeah, it's a very bare bones kind of thing, isn't it? There's a Halloween image for you. (laughs) Well, I mean, you can have bare bones and have it work very well. This just felt weird and fake. Strangely, it does. And not in a creepy, haunting way, but just, yeah, that's stupid kind of way. Mm-hmm. What about the whole Adric thing? Since he's officially now our new companion, and we've got him, and we've got him for a while. What do we think of him in this one? It's fine. Yeah, he fit the kind of artful Dodger role, I guess, that we've heard is, was kind of the template for who he is. He is kind of a brat and maybe a little too smart-mouthed for his own good. Yeah, I don't know how long that can be played before it just gets grating and annoying. And that really is an issue with that character because Andrew Smith at least tries to give him a decent introduction and does try to put some of those character elements in, but then the character changes in this one, and he seems slightly different that whole speech where he says to romana i reckon that one of my families died for you lot already and one is enough that doesn't sound like adric even though it's directly referencing the events of the previous book it just doesn't sound like adric i guess i didn't notice that because i don't have a clear sense yet of what adric sounds like and now i've read two books with him and still don't so yes yes it's not offensive he's just not a very strong presence or not written as a very strong presence yeah in fact Ramana's sense of protectiveness about him is much more strongly written on the page though on screen you can already tell that Lala War doesn't like him and she's only doing it because the script is saying she has to so it's a shame that he's much better liked on the page than he is on screen but there you go and yet he still isn't quite gelled yet. Yeah. There's the scene towards the end where Romana basically chews him out saying like, if you weren't here, I would already be on the TARDIS on my way out of here, but I came back to save you. Mm -hmm. And even that she seems, she seems a little peeved with him. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like, yeah. Lala Ward doesn't have to act when she's doing that scene. (laughs) (laughs) His kind of, um, snarky attitude did feel like a good kind of jump start maybe to get the people of the town and the rebels to 
maybe kind of buck the authority that was placed upon them. Mm -hmm. But it didn't so much feel as like someone trying to be like triumphant and kind of raise their spirits. It was more just like, you know, like a brat, like a little (laughs) child that's just like, doesn't like authority. And it's like, well, if you don't like it, you got to fix it. You got to change it. You got to do something about it. Don't listen to them. And that characterization is (sighs) tired. Yeah, this is the second story in Tired, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that would have been a good distribution of the characters because the Doctor is the one who kind of riles them all up with his paraphrase of the St. Crispin speech. Mm -hmm. But it could have been Adric whipping the villagers into a frenzy instead. Adric is victim number two. (laughs) and it's like okay all right so he's the chosen one probably because he's a pretty boy yeah sure let's do it that way then i mean play off the vampiric homosexual trope a little more yes especially since that's one of the things that doesn't really play into this much because dix is doing some heavy stealing from bram stoker for this Probably that's the main reason why they didn't want the story airing at the same time as Dracula. It's because it's borrowing a lot from that one. (laughs) But there's no homosexual contact in Bram Stoker's novel. If Dracula ever takes male blood, he does it through the intermediary of a woman who's had a transfusion from men. Mm -hmm. Whereas here... They're not even bothering to play with that. They're like, oh yeah, he's the chosen one for some God only knows reason. Oh, but we don't need him anymore because now we have the blood of a time lady. So she'll be the chosen one. And none of it makes a lot of sense at all. That was actually one that did seem to make sense to me. Like, ooh, a time lord, they're juicy. That's a good final treat. (laughs) Well, I'm sure it's a different kind of blood. That's for sure. Well, and then, you know, one of the historic enemies of the vampires, like that made sense to me in some ways. As, well, like I said, as a treat, but maybe how did they know she, that a time lady was going to be available for this big final sacrifice? Like, just like the final bucket full of blood? I guess. It seems like kind of an arbitrary finale. Mm-hmm. Just a tad bit. She's a garnish. She's a garnish. <laughs> a scalloping around the edges. Yeah. And the tower is like the big old toothpick jammed into the center of it oh god that sequence on screen is so embarrassingly bad and in fairness i thought that the entire tower slash spaceship was going to be launched into the large vampire creature so i thought it was some restraint to just send a small scouting ship through its heart <laughs> but okay so what was in the fuel tanks of that they referred to there being just barely enough in the fuel tanks was it actual fuel i guess it was actual are there fuel. blood blood tanks no tank? no blood blood fuel tanks regular fuel tanks. nah blood doesn't burn all that well leaves a horrible smell <laughs> i think he says there's just enough in the energy cells so yeah there probably should be some fuel in there though gasoline goes bad in six years so i can't imagine that rocket fuel yeah would last just longer. the whole it's been a thousand years let's just launch it off seems yeah like. So many holes in this plot. Well, it's not holes. They're just, it's just uh, tropes without anything to sort of liven them up. Yeah, I guess so. 
too many things leading us to question mm-hmm. other things, not necessarily holes, but just things that do not resonate either yeah. atmospherically <laughs> or thematically or as fun scares or fun, exciting moments. And it's a shame, too, because usually when we Terrence... were not entertained. <laughs> well, no, no, I wasn't saying that. I was saying when Terrence Dix usually adapts his own stuff, it's somehow better. I mean, certainly Horror Fang Rock was a very good book of a very good story. And you'd think that he, of all people, knowing his own material, would be able to add more to it. But nothing is really added to this. In fact, a few things are taken away. Romana loses her joke about being the Lady Camilla's blood group separator. It, yeah, there's less here. And it feels like less. So it's a little, little sad, to be honest. I wonder if some of that, too, is just that since it isn't his original vision that he doesn't feel as attached to it, since it is something that's been very much, shall we say, chopped and screwed. Um, yeah. That it's, he's just like, okay, well, whatever, this isn't really my story anymore anyway. So, mm-hmm. Except he did a wonderful job with Brain of Morbius, and that one really did get a chop job by Robert Holmes. To the point that Terrence Dix took his name off the original script. And yet the book is really quite good. Mm-hmm. So it may just be that Terrence Dix at this point in 1982 is like, uh, <laughs> just <laughs> over it. Kind of tired of <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, just a little bit. Mm. It certainly feels like his later novelizations through the 80s are not quite as energetic, even when he has time to complete them. Yeah. Why did this crew have to be from earth. Like we're told that they're from earth and it amounts to absolutely nothing other than the doctor, maybe being a little familiar with the technology. No idea. It's like, why put that in there well, from our universe as opposed to e-space is how I told it. But you're right. It could be some other, just as easily some other species. Yeah. 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 You know, could very easily have been some other humanoid species that somehow came under the great vampire's thrall. In fact, it would be, I, I, I say it would be interesting. It might be somewhat interesting to see the prequel to this. In fact, I was fully expecting there to be a Terrence Dix prologue in which we saw the Hydrax coming under the control of the great vampire. And it never happens. I would have given anything for that, to be honest, because that's one of the things that makes Full Circle such a good book. You've got that impressive prologue that sets the scene for everything else. There could have been an equally impressive prologue for this, at least explaining how O'Connor becomes Orcon because apparently, I guess because he's Irish, and so he has more mental ability than... The average bear? I have no idea what's going on there, to be honest. But, you know, it's something about all of that. But no, we don't get any of the prehistory, and that might have done it. <sighs> Anything else we want to say about this? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Since it's something that we've brought up in the past few books, Canine's treatment was a little better in that he wasn't beat up or taken apart, destroyed in any way. He kind of played a part that he would have previously played before the John Nathan Turner hate era. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. And the weird thing about that is Terrence Sticks added him to the script with the proviso that he wouldn't have to use him much. 
and yet it's the best use of canine this season so far. Yeah. So it really is kind of a shame that canine's getting the short stick. At least the short stick's not stuck up his head this time. <laughs> yes. All right, so shall we go to Goodreads? Let's get over there. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, this is going to be rather a short one, but ah, that's all right. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when you get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves, you may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.61, which strikes me as a bit high. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. In fact, I didn't have to do any editing for length because no one from our Goodreads group actually contributed a review this time. (laughs) Which shows you something, I think, about this book. Even Dave Davies didn't write anything for it, which is just really unusual. So I had to go into the main Goodreads reviews. Mel gives it four stars and says this is the second eSpace adventure. It was quite an intriguing, amusing premise. A spaceship had been brought through a rift and its crew turned into vampires who had been feeding up the master vampires so it could break free. It was Doctor Who meets sci-fi hammer horror. Perhaps not the most realistic of adventures, but there were some very amusing Romana lines. I liked that while the Doctor was perfectly willing to abandon Adric to his fate as the vampire's lunch, Romana decided she needed to go and rescue him. The book itself, as usual, didn't really add anything to the story, but it did make for nice, easy bedtime reading. I suppose so. Jack gives it five stars and says, The novelization retains the beautiful atmosphere of the original televised version, with human sacrifices and vats of blood and vicious bats and everything you'd hope for from a vampire story, but be worried wouldn't fit with Doctor Who. The futuristic technology elements are reminiscent of the Face of Evil from season 14 of the show, but in my opinion, they are put to even better use here. Really? The Doctor and Romana have some lovely scenes together in the story, particularly when they are both imprisoned, where there is a nod to the Time Monster. It also marks the beginning of Adric's TARDIS travels as he stows away at the end of the previous story, so he starts to form a relationship with the Doctor and Romana as well. Not really. Although this is developed more in later stories as he doesn't spend much time with them in this one, this is true. As usual with the Terrence Dix book, reading this novelization feels just like re-watching the TV episodes, which in this case is a very good thing. I don't think there's anything in that sentence I disagree more with. <laughs> he also wrote the script for this story. There's not much of anything new in this book, but I just love the original serial, so I enjoyed this one too. And finally... Lauren gives it four stars and simply says, one star knocked off because Adric. Jeez. Fair enough. Yeah, I'd say so. So, Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this book? Uh, I would give... Oh, man. I don't know. (laughs) I'll give it a a 2.5, which is probably a little high, but... The story does nothing for me. The story just is kind of just dead and boring and drained of blood. Yeah. (laughs) Lifeless, not, not to pun or anything, but it just, there's not a whole lot here that I really care about. Terrence Dix 
writing is okay. It's not the best thing we've seen from him, but he's not doing a a bad job. It's just the story itself is so uninspiring to me that even if he would have whipped up some magical prose, I I wouldn't really care. So, yeah. Okay. And Allison, out of five stars? I'm going to go 1.5. I agree with Dalton about the lifelessness of the story itself. I didn't suffer greatly, though, reading through it. Like I said, it had some very entertaining banner with the Doctor and Romana. And I mean, it, it goes by quickly. So I guess when I talk about its chief virtue being its brevity, I guess it is a bit of a tepid compliment. (laughs) There's nothing horrible in it. There are just a lot of things that don't make sense that don't have any kind of uh, juiciness to recommend them either. Okay. And as for me, I'm going to go right down the middle and give it a two. To play off something that Allison says, it doesn't have a lot of juiciness in it. And there's nothing horrible about it. And that's the problem. This is a fucking vampire story. There should be lots that's horrific about the story and lots that's horrible. And it doesn't do it. It doesn't have nearly, nearly the atmosphere that the TV story does. Because the TV story makes you ignore all these plot holes pretty tidily. But you just can't ignore them when they're on the page. And you would think that Terrence Sticks of all people would be more than interested in preserving the story as it was on screen and possibly adding something to it because it's his own script, but he couldn't be bothered with it and nor can I. So yeah, I really had to push myself through this one. So two stars. Well, thank you all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. I mean, it wasn't so much a Halloween special as it was just Halloween-y, but there you go. It wasn't really a special book. It was a Halloween ordinary. Yeah, that's for sure. It was more like candy corn rather than Reese's pumpkins. I feel like we may have failed to entertain the troops here, though. Um, No. (laughs) Don't say that yet. Like we should have, I don't know, whipped up some venom for this book or something. No, yeah, but... I'll put some sound clips in it. It'll still be interesting. Next time, we continue with Tom Baker's last season as we look at John Lydecker's novelization of Warrior's Gate. In the meantime, if you like what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in words with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetDC. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all this fails you, and it inevitably will, Email me directly at emperordalic.gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe on this Halloween and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Doctor Who Podcast Network.